Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2014 AWP conference in Seattle. The recording features Lucia Perillo, Natalie Diaz, and Dean Young. You will now hear Michael Weigers read a poem by W.S. Merwin, who was sadly unable to attend the conference, and then provide introductions. To read one of his poems for him, so if you'll indulge me, uh, I, I, while I have his hair color, I don't have his mellifluous <laughs> voice. Um, this is um, Antique Sound. There was an age when you played records with ordinary steel needles, which grew blunt and damaged the grooves or with more expensive stylus tips, said to be tungsten or diamond, which wore down the records and the music receded. But a friend and I had it on persuasive authority that the best thing was a dry thorn of the right kind, and I knew where to find those, off to the left of the Kingston Pike, in the shallow swale that once had been forest, and had grown back into scrubby wilderness, alive with an earthly choir of crickets, blackbirds, finches, crows, jays, the breathing of voles, raccoons, rabbits, foxes, the breeze in the thickets, the thorn bushes humming a high polyphony, all long gone since to improvement. But while that fine dissonance was in tune, we rode out on bicycles to break off dry thorn branches, picking the thorns, and we took back the harvest and listened to Beethoven's Rasumovsky quartets echoed from the end of a thorn. So, um, and while we're while we're so, sorry that uh, William can't be here uh, today, um, we're thrilled. Um, to have Lucia Perillo and Natalie Diaz uh, joining us in his place to, to join. Uh, to join uh, Dean Young uh, in poems and conversation. Um, and um, I just want to say you know, what a thrill it is to be uh, their publisher and editor. And um, so I'm going to introduce them in the order that they're going to read, and I'll, I'll get up and introduce each one, so um, bear with me. Um, but we're going to start with Lucia Perillo. Um, Lucia is the author of numerous collections of poetry, including, and here's where I forgot my books, so excuse me, Willie. <laughs> So I have to shield for my authors. Um, her, her most recent book is um, is on the spectrum of possible deaths, um, and um, and before that we published inseminating the elephant. Um, Lucia is um, it was has been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for the Los Angeles Book the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Um, she won the the. The Bobbitt Prize from the Library of Congress. Um, she was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. And of her writing, the New York Times has said, to read Lucia Perlo is to learn that her hopefulness is not a matter of luck or temperament, but is fought for tooth and claw. Um, she She's um, taught at Syracuse University, Southern Illinois University, and the Warren Wilson MFA program. And she's a former MacArthur uh, fellow um, and currently lives in Olympia, Washington. Um, please join me in welcoming Lucia. I'm going to start. Uh, oh, first of all, I wanted to say that it's a real honor to be here with Natalie Diaz and Dean Young, is um, poets whom I've read and admired, and I just feel very lucky to be doing this. Um, so, uh, the first poem I want to read. It's called Virtue is the Best Helmet, which is a Roman proverb. And it's a poem I wrote for my friend Vivian Kendall, who spent a lot of time in cyberspace. And so we had this ongoing argument about the value of living in a computer versus living in reality. 
one of these days I'm going to get myself an avatar so I can ride in Arctic in cyberspace. <laughs> Goodbye, the meat cage. Pray the server doesn't crash. Pray against the curse of carpal tunnel syndrome. But then my friend, the lactation consultant, brings up the quadriplegic who gave birth two times, no less, motorcycle wreck, just to make her body do one thing the meat could still remember. Somebody has to position the babies to sip the breast milk rivulets, and then the cells exude despite their slumber. One minute, there's too much silence. The next, there's so much screaming. Turns out Madagascar's giant cockroach makes a good addition to a robot because the living brain adds up to more than motor, tracking ball, and the binary numeric code. Usually the cockroach flees from light, but sometimes it stands in its little coach, unmoving, stymied by the dumb fact of air. And sometimes it rams into a wall, wall to force the world to show its hand. Um, rebuttal. Uh, this poem is a, contains allusions to that Auden poem, Les Musées de Beaux Arts, and if you don't know that poem, you're at a loss, I think, but we're all um, educated here. Uh, so we can assume that your teachers made you have to made you read it. My quarrel with the old masters is they never made suffering big enough. That tiny leg sliding into the bay almost insults me. That it should be all we get of the falling boy after the half-hour stunt of his famous flying. Don't you see they are cartoons, the drunk kissed? In the British Museum, a drunk in a sport coat. That made him look credible at first, some kind of docent. An itinerant purveyor of glosses that left me confused. I studied Bruegel's paintings, tiny skaters and hunters come home with tiny dead animals, gutted outside the frame where the tiny offal presumably had been left. I was looking for Icarus, but the Musée de Beaux-Arts is in Belgium, you twit. And so I did not see the plowman wearing his inexplicably dainty shoes, a cartoon you American sow. And no one came to my rescue in that gallery, vacated even by its dust, where I, where I also did not see the galleon, anchored below the plowman's pasture with its oblivious content with being tiny sheep. But just wait until that ship sails out and encounters the kind of storm that'll require abstract expressionism to capture the full feeling of. The giant canvases of the 20th century, swaths of color with no figures in them at all. How immense the drowning when you're the boy who drowns. Between the fireball on your back and the water in front, all gray and everywhere and hard as concrete when you smack down. This poem is called The Second Slaughter. Uh, I wrote it after I'd read uh, the Iliad for the first time a couple of years back, and I figured I'd have to get, capture it in a poem before I forgot the story altogether. <laughs> Achilles slays the man who slew his friend, pierces the corpse behind the heels and drags it behind his chariot like the cans that trail a bride and groom. Then he lays out a banquet for his men, 
oxen and goats and pigs and sheep the shoulder the soldiers eat until a greasy moonbeam lights their beards the first slaughter is for victory but the second slaughter is for grief in the morning more animals must be killed for burning with the body of the friend but achilles finds no consolation in the hiss and crackle of their fat not even heaving forth stallions on the pyre can lift the ballast of his sorrow. And here I turn my back on the epic hero, the one who slits the throats of his friend's dogs, killing what the loved one loved to reverse the polarity of grief. Let him repent by vanishing from my concern. After he throws four dogs onto the throws the dogs onto the fire. The singed fur makes the air too difficult to breathe. When the oil wells of Persia burned, I did not weep until I read about the birds, the long-legged ones especially, which I imagined to be scarlet with crests like egrets and tails like peacocks, covered in tar, waiting the feathers they dragged through black shallows at the rim of the marsh. But once I told this to a man who said I was inhuman for giving animals my first lament. So now I guard my inhumanity, like the jackal who appears behind the army base at dusk, come there for scraps with his head lowered in a posture that looks like appeasement, though it is not. I know I only have minutes so I'm trying to go fast I could name some names of those who have drifted through thus far their allotted 50 or 70 or 90 years on earth with no disasters happening whatever had to be given up was given up and the food at the rehab facility was better than you would expect and the children turned out more or less okay Sure, there were some shaky years, but no one's living in the basement anymore with a divot in his head. That's where the shrapnel landed, or don't look at her stump. It is easy to feel possessed of the soul that's better schooled than the fluffy cloud inside of people who have never known such like events by which our darlings are unfavorably remade. And the self is the darling's darling. I equal darling's square. Every day I meditate against my envy, aimed at those who drift inside the bubble of no trouble. What is the percentage? 20% of us? 8%? Zero? Maybe the ex-president with his nubile daughters vigorous old parents and clean colonoscopy. Grr, remember to breathe. Breathe in suffering, breathe out blessings, say the ancient Dharma texts. Still I beg to file this one complaint, that summer mountain biking through the scrublands, while she is here at the Ralph's Thriftway, running her thumb over a peach's bruise, her leg a steel rod in a miniskirt to make sure I see. Um, I'd like to read a couple of new poems. I feel they'll just pull the plug when it's time's up, right? Okay. Elegy for Idle Curiosity. I used to ask aloud such things as why is the moon round, buffed only by the chamois cloth of space. But now I hold my tongue or else people will start to tap apparatus they've strapped to their hips as if they were knights. They are knights, 
assailed by the uncertain, when it stands to reason that we must be somewhere on the map. The self tends to be the only one not knowing where it is. No more paddling the murk of pointless speculation, wondering if the force that drives the whirlpool also winds the spider's web. A person can't just wobble around with her mouth open. It arouses the surveillance. Instead, we're supposed to be like traffic lights, vigilant in every season. No more standing like a chanterelle, spewing out 10,000 spores, penetrating the substrate, laying a fiber everywhere. And this is last poem. I think I'm. I think I made it. And um, this is called the Rape of Blanche Dubois. And she's the main character in uh, Streetcar Named Desire, right? What did I know about art? I had seen a few foreign movies, that was it. When I finally drove from my childhood home, I got to the Cuyahoga River and was disappointed to find it not burning because I knew a song about its burning. When I got to the Platte River, I was satisfied because the song I knew was about a bum along its bank, and I did see that. I thought a river burning would be art. A bum along a river could be art with the right sort of lighting, but the man I saw was not correctly lit. <laughs> Nearby, however, was a warehouse, which had been turned into a theater where they were putting on the play, A Streetcar Named Desire. The word streetcar made me think of hats and stockings that hooked onto garter belts. Plus, desire was a word with its own little jet plane that could whisk you off to Paris. So I locked my bicycle to a drain pipe running down the wall where the poster had been pasted. It showed a woman being eaten by a shadow. Not a gray one, but a black. Inside the warehouse was cold despite the rumble of the heater. And as soon as the actress stepped onto the stage, you knew that Blanche was damaged. I remember wanting to tell her that we didn't have to do this, enact her humiliation, and my simultaneous wanting her to do exactly that. Break into little pieces, like animal kibble. Ah, I thought, so this is art. This chewing, my cheeks full of blanch. And when he was finally alone with her, in this production, Stanley tore off his silk pajamas, turned away from me, but still, I remember all the muscles in the actor's rump. A muscle rump that aroused me even as it horrified. Then the warehouse went black for the scene change. A few moments of darkness during which my arousal deflated. You may not believe me when I say the air expelled by its deflation was sufficient to eject me from my life into another, my authentic life, in those black moments that contained both the ardor and the horror and the wonder at their having been simultaneously created. When the lights came up again, the man, the men in the white coats hauled her off the end. As we clapped, everybody sheepishly looked around to check the set status of everyone else's arousal, asking, which life are you in, your old or your new? The new one that was the product of your willingness to be manipulated, and therefore your gullibility or the old one that is childish, or at least naive. 
their answer was defective, which is why we look down at our feet as we move toward the exits. And I was glad to have only the stars lighting me with their white needles as I pedaled off along the plat. So I forgot to mention that we will be uh, publishing a selected poems by Lucien in 2015, so keep your eyes out for that. It's going to be quite a treat. <laughs> Natalie Diaz was born in the Fort Mojave Indian Village in Needles, California. She's a Mojave and enrolled member of the Gila River Indian community. She received her uh, BA from Old Dominion University, where she received a full athletic scholarship and helped to guide her basketball team to the Final Four and was named her team's MVP. Um, after a pro career playing basketball and uh, then a blown knee, uh, she went on to earn an MFA in writing poetry. And she's the author of the poetry collection um, When My Brother Was an Aztec, um, which New York Times described as an ambitious, beautiful book. Her honors include the Nimrod Hardeman Pablo Neruda Prize, a Louis Untermeyer Scholarship for Poetry at Breadloaf, the Narrative Poetry Prize, and a Lannan Literary Fellowship. She lives in the Mojave uh, Valley, Arizona, where she works with the last speakers of Mo the Mojave language and directs a language revitalization program there. Uh, in uh, a PBS NewsHour interview, she spoke of the connection between writing and experience and said, for me, writing is a kind of way for me to explore why I want things and why I'm afraid of things and why I worry about things. And for me, all of those things represent a kind of hunger that comes with being raised in a place like this. Um, and, and I could say this about um, each of the, the poets here today, but um, what, what I love about being their editor is how much they are in love with poetry and, um, and are sustained by it. And um, so I'll stop prattling on and join me in welcoming Natalie. <laughs> Um, it's, it's really good to be here. It's, I, it's, I think, very obviously very lucky for me to be here um, with Lucia and Dean and Michael and Oliver is, is around somewhere. But um, people who I'm still learning so much about poetry from them and um, about life as well. So um, it's very lucky, I think, for, for me to share this space with them tonight. Top 10 reasons why Indians are good at basketball. One, the same reason we are good in bed. Two, <laughs> you can ask around. Chances are there's about six Indians in here and they'll tell you. <laughs> Two, because a long time ago, Creator gave us a choice. You can write like an Indian god or you can have a jump shot sweeter than a 44 ounce can of commodity grape juice one or the other. Everyone but Sherman Alexi chose the jump shot. <laughs> Three, we know how to block shots, how to stuff them down your throat, because when you say shoot, we hear howitzer and Hotchkiss and Springfield Model 1873. Four, when Indian ballers sweat, we emit a perfume of tortillas and pine saw floor cleaner that works like a potion to disorient our opponents and make them forget their plays. Five, we grew up knowing that there is no difference between a basketball court and church. Really, the Nazarenes hold church in the tribal gym on Sunday afternoons. The choir belts out in the suite by and by from the low block. Six, 
When Walt Whitman wrote the half-breed straps on his light boots to compete in the race, he really meant that all Indian men over age 40 have a pair of vintage Air Jordans in their closets and believe they are still magic enough to make even the largest Kamad bod able to go coast to coast and finish a layup. Seven. Indians are not afraid to try sky hooks in real games, even though no Indian has ever made a sky hook. No Indian from a federally recognized tribe, anyway. But still, our shamelessness to attempt sky hooks in warm ups strikes fear in our opponents, thus giving us a mental edge. Eight. On the court is the one place we will never be hungry. That net is an emptiness we can fill up all day long. Nine, we pretend we are playing every game for a Pendleton blanket, and the MVP gets a mash and tuck it Pequot-sized per capita check. Ten, really though, all Indians are good at basketball because a basketball has never been just a basketball. It has always been a full moon in this terminal darkness, the one taillight in Jimmy Jack Talcan's gray granada cutting along the back dirt roads on a beer run, the creator's heart that Coyote stole from the funeral pyre, cursing him to walk alone through every coral dusk. It has always been a fat gird we sing to, the left breast of a Mojave woman, three Budweiser's into Saturday night. It will always be a slick, bright bullet we can sling from the three-point arc with five seconds left on a clock in the year 1492. And as it rips down through the net, our enemies will fall to their wounded knees with torn ACLs. <laughs> I'm going to read the title poem from, from my book. When my brother was an Aztec, he lived in our basement and sacrificed my parents every morning. It was awful, unforgivable, but they kept coming back for more. They loved him was all they could say. It started with him stumbling along, Los Muertos, my parents walking behind like effigies in a procession he might burn to the ground at any moment. They didn't know what else to do except be there to pick him up when he died. They forgot who was dying, who was already dead. My brother quit wearing shirts when a carnival of dirty-breasted women made him their leader, following him up and down the stairs. They were acrobats, moving, twitching like snakes. They fed him crushed diamonds and fire. He gobbled the gifts. My parents begged him to pluck their eyes out. He thought he was Huitzilopochtli, a god, half man, half hummingbird. My parents at his feet wrecked honeysuckles. He lowered his sword like mouth, gorged on them, draining color until their eyebrows whitened. My brother shattered and quartered them before his basement festivals, waved their shaking hearts in his fists, while flea-ridden dogs ran up and down the steps, licking their asses, turning tricks. Neighbors were amazed my parents' hearts kept growing back. It said a lot about my parents, or parents' hearts. My brother flung them into cenotes, dropped them from cliffs, punched holes into their skulls like useless jars or vases, broke them to pieces and fed them to gods, ruling the ratty crotches of street fair whores with pocked faces, spreading their thighs in flop houses with no electricity. He slept in filthy clothes smelling of rotten peaches and matches, fell in love with sparkling spoonfuls the carnival dog women fed him. My parents lost their appetites for food, for sons. Like all bad kings, my brother wore a crown, a green baseball cap turned backwards with a Mexican flag embroidered on it. When he wore it in the front yard, which he treated like his personal socalo, all his realm knew he had the power that day, had all the jewels a king could eat or smoke or shoot. The slow girls came to the fence and ate out of his hands. He fed them mice through the chain links. My parents watched from the window, crying over their house turned zoo, their son who was now a rusted cage. 
The Aztec held court in salt cedar grove across the street where peacocks lived. My parents crossed fingers so he'd never come back, lit novena candles so he would. He always came home with turquoise and jade feathers and stinking of peacock shit. My parents gathered what he'd left of their bodies, trying to stand without legs, trying to defend his blows with missing arms, searching for their fingers to pray, to climb out of whatever dark belly my brother, the Aztec, their son, had fed them to. I'm going to read two more. And I see... I see Tim Sewells back there. <laughs> That's one of my favorite men in the whole world. Cranes, mafiosos, and a Polaroid camera. I had a few, you can, that'll actually work with this because there's a phone that happens in here. <clears throat> Cranes, mafiosos, and a Polaroid camera. I had a few days left of my stay at the Crane Sanctuary in Kearney, Nebraska, when my brother called. It was 3.24 a.m. It's me, he said. It's your brother. He had taken apart another Polaroid camera and needed me to explain how to put it back together. His voice was a snare drum, knocking and quick. He was crying. I didn't want to wake the other visitors, and I knew he'd keep calling hour after hour, day after day, lifetime after miserable lifetime, until I answered. Just tell me what to do. You know what to do, he pleaded. I should know how to help my brother by now. He and I have had this exact conversation before. If I love him, if I really love him, why haven't I learned to reassemble a Polaroid camera? Instead, I told him about the sandhill cranes, the way they dance, moving into and giving way to one another, bowing down, cresting and collapsing their wings, necks and shoulders, silver curls of smoky rhythm. But he didn't believe me. My brother believes the mafia placed a transmitter deep within his Polaroid camera, but he can't believe in dancing cranes. You think this is a joke, he whispers. These are fucking mafiosos I'm talking about. You're probably next. He hung up on me. That dawn, I aimed my digital camera at the sky until the last of an island of late rising cranes lifted into the metallic air. I couldn't take my eyes from the barrel of limbs, my finger fast trigger against the black skeleton of the camera. I wondered what it would look like cracked open to its upside down mirrors and shiny levers, how many screws there were, how many lantern lit cranes might come unfurling out of that cage. I wondered what I would look like if the darkened chambers of my body were unlocked, what streams of light might escape and reveal about the things I collect and hide, and is there a difference between aperture and wound? Mostly, I wondered where my brother keeps getting those goddamned Polaroid cameras. Then I'll end on this last one. These hands, if not God's. Haven't they moved like rivers, like glory, like light, over the seven days of your body? And wasn't that good then at your hips? Isn't this what God felt when he pressed together the first beloved? Everything, fever, vapor, atmen, pulses, finally a sin worth hurting for, finally a sweet, a you are mine. It is hard not to have faith in this. From the blue-brown clay of night, these two potters crushed and smoothed you into being, grind then curve, built your form up, atlas of bone, fields of muscle, one breast a fig tree, the other a nightingale, both morning and evening. 
Oh, the beautiful making they do of trigger and carve, suffering and stars. Aren't they too the dark carpenters of your small church? Have they not burned on the altar of your belly, eaten the bread of your thighs, broke you to wine, to eager, to nectarious feast? Haven't they riveted your wrists? Haven't they had you at your knees? And when these hands touched your throat, showed you how to take the apple and the rib, how to slip a thumb into your mouth and taste it all, didn't you sing out their 99 names, Zahir, Aleph, Hens times seven, Sphinx, Leonids, Locomotura, Rubidium, August, and Melissa? And when you cried out, oh, Prometheans, didn't they bring fire? These hands, if not God's, then why, when you have come to me, and I have returned you to that from which you came, bright mud, mineral salt, why then do you whisper, oh, my hecatonhire, my sentimani, my hundred-handed one? Thank you. Um, one of the great things about having to get up and sit back down is I remember what I forgot to say the last time. And I should mention that each of them actually has a book coming out with Copper Canyon Press in 2015. So um, keep an eye out for, for each uh, books by each of the poets here. Um, and before I introduce Dean, I should say after we're done here, I'm going to have a conversation uh, among the four of us. Um, Dean Young is nationally recognized as one of the most energetic and influential poets writing today. Uh, his numerous collections of poetry include Skid, which was a finalist for the Lenore Marshall Award, um, Elegy on Toy Piano, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and uh, Primitive Mentor, which was shortlisted for the International Griffin Poetry Prize. Um, he has written a book uh, that I highly recommend um, on poetics um, called The Art of Recklessness even though it was published by another pub publisher other than Copper Canyon, um, uh, and I covet it. Um, but um, um, Copper Canyon has been uh, more than blessed to publish his selected poems, Bender, and um, his collection, Fall Higher. Upon presenting him with the Academy Award in Literature, the American Academy of Arts and Letters noted, Dean Young's poems are as entertaining as a three-ring circus and as imaginative as a canvas by Hieronymus Bosch. Uh, Young has been awarded a Stegno Fellowship from Stanford, as well as fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, National Endowment for the Arts, and the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. Uh, he's taught at the Iowa Writers Workshop um, at Warren Wilson and uh, is currently at the Michener Center at the University of Texas, Austin, uh, where he holds the William Livingston Chair of Poetry. Um, please join me in welcoming Dean Young. My wolf is bigger than your wolf. I bet you don't even share 10 chromosomes with your wolf. When my wolf runs off with my ATM card, she comes back with the complete works of Kenneth Patchen. Did you know he wrote many of his finest poems flat on his back in excruciating pain? What was the heaviest rock ever put on your chest? Now multiply that and see if you don't confess you're a witch, even though your cat ignores you, your mileage sucks, and you've never once spit in a cauldron. See how foolish that is now, whatever was holding you back from flying through the zodiac? You could have known exactly where to dig up old prescription bottles and doll's heads people pay good money for. You could have known what was inside the locket recovered from the blast. Maybe even made Oppenheimer laugh as Sanskrit blistered his forehead, or helped get Wendy Davis elected to protect the reproductive rights of women in Texas. You'd have known to purify crystals, you hold them under cold running water and hum. 
See that tear in the rational? That's where the miraculous slips in. Usually it's so small even a protozoa can't squeeze through. That's why you need a wolf. Lives of the Poets, number 8,200,000. I don't know what the current number is. As far as uselessness goes, trying to write a poem ain't that bad, says the staircase falling down itself. The hole in the sky gets bigger every day, so maybe more and more of us can fit through. My camouflage is for a completely different terrain, so I have no choice but to puff myself up and glare about celestially, says the sunflower, while a farmer tenderly stuffs newspaper into his scarecrow's chest. Don't leave me, he says, changing, he says again and again, changing the emphasis. Don't leave me. Don't ever leave me. Some crows of inordinate and unnecessary intelligence watch him sorrowfully, much as an eyeball in a palm will regard its own dreamer. Later, one of the crows will write in his journal, maybe misery is a net, which he crosses out, then writes, every raindrop has a face, and triumphantly puts his quill down and goes outside to drown himself in the moon's reflection in a puddle, but not nearly drunk enough scolds a cricket, that old faker. <laughs> One of the things that happens to me when I, when I try to write is a lot of echoes and other things that are much better than anything I can write come through my arm and out my hand. And uh, I, I was sort of sick of that. And I, so I decided just to write out as many of those as possible. So this poem is, is full of, of uh, echoes. It's called Rough Drafts. Western, Western wind rearrange me. Bail out bliss and crunch it. I have been half in love with Vicky DeWojack. <laughs> the world of do is the world of doo-doo. Often I am permitted to return to Kmart. <laughs> My best robot shoots rockets from its chest. The earliest form of polo was played with human heads. Death creeps me out, but still I'm attracted to its tongue in my mouth. I heard a fly buzz the day I made pickled eggs. <laughs> Whatever I'm the child of must be something big. All the new thinking is about loss, and in this it resembles a lot of my old socks. <laughs> Something's skipping in the fossil record. I too hop from branch to branch with an inordinate fondness for beetles. My pecker's giving me problems. I wonder lonely and out loud. Luckily, my sister follows me around with her journal. I like those old jingles, downward on extended winding, no ideas but in ka -ching. It's 12.20, wait, no, it's 1.15. What time is it where you are? I like an explosion that leaves a star. I like my steak with a good sear. I hope I end up far from here. My doctor says I'm ruining my liver. Take me to a different river. This is called Believe in Magic. And that's a pretty, it's a question. I know it's a corny title. Uh, but everybody loved that song, right? Do you believe in magic? John Sebastian and the Love and Spoonful. Um, this refers to a, a rather extreme medical procedure that I went through. Believe in magic? 
How could I not have seen a man walk up to a piano and both survive? Have turned the exterminator away, seen lipstick on a wine glass not shatter the wine, seen rainbows in puddles, been recognized by stray dogs. I believe reality is approximately 65% if. All rivers are full of sky. Waterfalls have mines. We all come from slime, even alpacas. I believe we're surrounded by crystals, not just Alexander Videnski. Maybe dysentery, maybe a guard's bullet did him in. Nonetheless, nevertheless, I believe there are many kingdoms left. The Declaration of Independence was written with a feather. A single gem has throbbed in my chest my whole life, even though, even though this is my second heart. Because the first failed, such was its opportunity. Was cut out in pieces and incinerated, I asked. And so was denied the chance to regard my own heart in a jar. Strange tangled imp, we slick it in red brambles. You know what it feels like to hold a burning piece of paper, maybe even trying to read it as the flames get close to your fingers until all you're holding is a curl of ash by its white ear tip, yet the words still hover in the air. That's how I feel now. conversation here and I wonder um, I'm going to start uh, with a dancer or the dance uh, sort of question um, right there Dean you were talking about words coming out of your hands and 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 arm and um, and so I'm wondering if each of what if you each uh, uh, consider poetry to be a vehicle of the body or the body to be a vehicle of, of poetry. And each of you has written about the human body, about its betrayals and reconstructions, its central delights and un unnerving humiliations. I'm just wondering if you might speak about the, the, the role of the physical body uh, relative to poetry. <laughs> Who wants to go first? That's a hard question. Uh, obviously, we have bodies. Right. So many of us wouldn't have to go to the bathroom right now if we didn't. Um, Water. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that poetry aspires to is to rival bodily experience. So I think it's always in conversation with a body. One's own body, that collection of disasters is, is often a, a, a source of, of, of content. And also, it, by its sheer distractibility, it's, it's, it's a source of, of, of style, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, Yeah. I guess I'm wondering also, I mean, I've heard you in particular, Dean, talk about how you know, at a certain point you want to stop writing a certain type of poem um, that has to deal with your transplant. And, and so is, um, you know, clearly in one way, writing about the body is inescapable. Um, but, um, you know, also it's a, it's, a, it's a subject for each of you, you know, whether or not it's, you know, um, you know, shooting a jump shot or if it's navigating a, getting in and out of a van um, I'm just uh, at what point um, do do you try to avoid writing about the body well for me that's just a question of becoming bored with the subject <laughs> getting bored with it uh, that's only one aspect of the body though you know the body is what the, the body is is the thing that connects us most vividly and 
It's the biggest reminder of our mortality, I think. And that that's the big inspiration. In fact, the time is running out. That's why we end our lives. For me, writing is really loud. Um, writing is very much a part of the body, and it's still, I think, very connected, especially because of athletics. Um, but writing for me is still a very physical act. Um, when I write, I move, I sweat, I, you know. Um, and I think I, I probably, when I'm writing, even early drafts, it's very. I'm talking out loud, like I want to know how the words sound and feel. Um, they need to be more of an ink to me, you know, and so I, I talk a lot to myself, I move a lot, I, I'm kind, kind of wandering around. And I think that finally lets me shut things down and, and discover something new. Um, I do write a lot about the body. Um, I think the way I've come to know the body, especially from the reservation, I think the very first body I ever loved was my great-grandmother was a double amputee. And so very early on, the body became a mystery to me, how it was or how it was not there in front of me, um, things like scars and stuff. And so that I think I kind of carry and filter through all of my poems that, that deal with the body. Even poems about the beloved, I think, are still very filtered through that kind of fractured, broken body that that I became so afraid of and so in love with um, very early on. Uh, I think that um, it's easy to object to the body and it's funny how it's difficult to not have a body. Um, there's certain po poets like Wallace Stevens, for example, we don't know anything about his body. And then I think, well, you know, the body keeps coming into my poems, and I think, you know, get out of here, body. I don't want you in the, my poems. I want to be Wallace Stevens not having a body. But I can't, I, I don't know how to construct that kind of a, 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 you know, a body of work. And I don't, I think it's because, I think it's a, a failure of imagination on my part. Or is it just inescapable? I mean, I think Stevens is a Well, yeah, we, he, he, you know, we don't, he walked to work every day, but he didn't say, I wrote this poem when I was walking to work, you know? So, so, so he didn't let the conditions of his existence into the poem, I think, because he had greater resources of imagination. So here, here's a left field question. Do any of you believe in reincarnation? I believe in recycling. Hence, <laughs> <laughs> your yeah. is beating right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I, I guess um, I'd also like to something that that you each hold in common. I mean, uh, beyond, beyond you, know, you don't hold the body in common, but you have bodies. Um, what's what's the role of of humor uh, as you see it in your poems? Um, the the other morning, uh, I was having breakfast with with Natalie, and she was talking about. Uh, humor as it referenced the Mojave uh, and their use of language and spoke of uh, humor not only in terms of endurance but also of misunderstanding and mistranslation. And, and each of you, I think, um, well, you know, one of the many things I love about your, your work is, is um, the humor with which you approach things that are um, uh, to be endured. Um, and so, so if I can, you know, um, take for example, you know, Lucia, your title poem, uh, "Inseminating the, the Elephant," is a very funny poem. But you're not just writing that to um, to to get a laugh. Um, it's it's serving some other purpose. Well, I don't. I that I talk about how Jack Gilbert has that 
poem about, I, you know, I don't write funny poems. He, he says very scoldingly. And um, I don't like the way humor is denigrated as being an inferior art form. Uh, or, uh, you know, it's that it, it's something that only, um, you know, you're producing secondary art once it gets to be funny. Um, so anyway, I, you know, I, I w always want to combat that idea. I'm not sure how to combat it. Well, one of the, one of the, the I think the greatest source of humor is, is the truth. That's one of the reasons we, we, we laugh is because we're confronted with truths in contexts in which we don't expect to hear the truth. And I think to tell you, to say the truth is we never expect to hear the truth. Uh, a lot of times the truth is not necessarily bad news, but it's, you know, what's the truth? We're all going to die. You know, 50 years from now, the AWP, how many of us are going to be in this room or anywhere? Not a lot of us. Um, and, and so those kinds of truths, when they're, when they're presented to us, have a kind of, they kind of shock us. And laughter is one of the, one of the main res responses to it. It's why kids are funny. Because they always say they say things that are true, and for social conventions or or just decency, uh, which we all have to be trained in every day, uh, we don't usually say those things. So we hear them; they're true, and and they're hilarious. So it's like everything else in in in, in poetry; it's all about context. So do you think that truth and loss are intertwined, and loss and humor? intertwined yeah well also you know truth and, and finding because you can't lose something that you didn't find to begin with so it's it's all funny <laughs> yeah and in my community we everything is funny um, that, for example one of the examples I can give you is I have an, I work with elders to I work on uh, our language, my native language, and there are three speakers left, and they're between 85 and 92 years old. And I start early in the morning, so at about 6 a.m. one morning, I went to to talk with my teacher, and we were going to record language, and he let me know that another elder was in the hospital, and we live out in the desert, so he told me uh, they flew her out to Vegas last night, which made me know it was serious, and, and I said, ah, oh. and he goes, no, ah, oh. she better not die, she still owes me $40, <laughs> you know, but that's, and that's just the way we talk, and I think, I think some, there's something to be said that one doesn't replace the other, there's a way to hold them both at the same time, whether it's a truth and humor or something awful and humor, you know, like you, you can't have the light without the dark kind of thing and so uh, for me it's I don't even know that I intentionally do it and sometimes I don't even notice it until someone very uncomfortably laughs in the audience and then when you you know when you say my brother's excuse was that he steps you know was that um, a man fell on his knife everybody laughs and then you say the real thing is that he stabs somebody five times in the back and everybody kind of puts their head down and is ashamed that they laughed um, but to me that's the way we talk. Um, it doesn't feel necessarily so constructed. Um, I'm, I'm going to uh, put um, another of our poets uh, a little bit on the spot here. Last night I was having a conversation uh, with Richard Sykin, whose uh, new book we'll be publishing in the coming year, I'm happy to say. And, um, and he was um, uh, saying that he would like to, to ask Dean a question, which I think applies to each of you. And I could cite individual cases in your poem, but um, uh, his being profoundly struck by the use of, of uh, or the sense of scale in your work. And for example, he used, walk down any road long enough and you'll come to a slaughterhouse. Keep walking and you'll read the, reach the sea. And then in the poem, in the museum with the Greek paintings, the consideration that it might be a tiny room instead of a giant rose um, that, that you're seeing. Um, and 
And, and so Richard's question was, does this understanding come from spiritual concerns, issues of the body, or something else? I think it comes entirely from trying to, to get energy into to poetry uh, and to construct statements which have uh, some kind of dynamism to them. And one of the ways of creating dynamism is by radical shifts in scale. And I also believe that an ant is just as magnificent as a, as a cathedral. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't uh, confuse scale and size. Because mm -hmm. yeah, I, I also I think of similarly of, um, and I'm trying to remember the title of the poem where you come over a rise and you see the the um, um, not the golden rod the the scotch broom in your your poem and and um, the heart skips a beat and suddenly in that in that moment you know um, you know I, I find you know, just a, a gasping at, at seeing this this flower and. and and I'm wondering how you use you know, scale in your, your poems, Lucia. Oh, um, what is the question? Scale? So, so um, what's, what's the, um, um, yeah, so, um, you know, the, the, the sense of scale in your work, you know, so, um, you know, the, the idea that, um, you know, that that you're you can you can jump off from from something small and and expands into a a larger way of seeing mm -hmm. um, and I'm just wondering how you use it how you um, you know, use scale in your own work. Well, um, uh, I don't know. I think that's the uh, you know we're gods when you're writing a poem, right? You can do anything you want. So um, it, at the same point, so I mean, all decisions are artistic decisions, but, and I don't want to conf confuse people too much. I don't, you know, I think enough about the reader in that I don't want to leave them in the dust. I mean, I think often I do, but I don't think I am. So uh, I want to um, get away with as much as I can get away with without completely losing comprehensibility. But I, I think those kind of shifts are in inherently interesting. I mean, it's interesting when you're driving through this desert and you come across, you know, a hamburger stand with a giant hamburger on the roof, <laughs> right? Or, you know, a bar that's made in a coffee pot, a building that looks like a coffee pot. So, um, one, I guess one one last question that, that I would ask is: um, so I often think that uh, as a publisher, my um, my job, and as an editor, my my job is almost to um, protect my poets from me. Um, and, 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 and what 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 I mean by that? Try harder, man. <laughs> What, what, what I mean by that is, you know, one, one of the, you know, so a publisher's role is by nature reductive. We're trying to, you know, to narrow the scope of, of your vision into a commodifiable package. Um, so, um, so I guess I'm wondering what, and, and so, you know, we can, we can, as, as a publisher, we can, you know, describe you in, you know, nice tidy packages, you know, so the poet with, you know, who, with a heart transplant, the basketball poet, the poet in a wheelchair. So what, what, and I think each of you just wants to be known as an artist, wants to be known as, you know, uh, a brilliant person, but how would you describe yourselves beyond the marketing, beyond the packaging? What would be the one well, thing that you would want well, to transcend all the other descriptions? I, I just want to say that before, it's it's also um, my big fear is that 
you know, I'm in the package, and maybe I'm in the package, and I don't know that I'm in the package, you know, because I'm here and, and to the outside world. Maybe I am the wheelchair put. I don't want to, you know, that's my fear. I don't know if it's avoidable. I don't also know if you can describe yourself. Like, how would you encapsulate your work? Well, that's not my job, really. That's a critic's job. I, mean, I don't know what my work is like. I just do it. I don't analyze it. I, I should say that when, whenever we launch on a new book with, with a poet, we all, always ask them to you know, give us a description of the book, and every poet hates to do it. And so <laughs> now I'm just making that transaction a little more right, right. by asking you guys, okay, you know, what's, how would you describe yourselves beyond, you know, beyond the back jacket of a book? You know, what, what, you know, what's the, the secret you most want to tell about your work? I think it would be the Caliphant. Yeah. The what? The cauliflower. Cauliflower? No, no about your work. Not about your book. Yeah. Oh, the cauliflower? Yeah, the cauliflower. Yeah. Well, what is that? That's the, you know, yeah. the description at the back of the book. Oh, I thought we were talking about, the about type, vegetable. About the type, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what vegetable would you be? That's, that's a good question. So. Uh, our socks, maybe. Uh, your socks? Okay. Oh, yeah, you guys got good socks, so. Well, I can't believe you're wearing half socks, man. <laughs> so, I call you out on stage, you call me. Yeah, okay. I think we better end this. <laughs> yeah. So, well, thank you all for coming. Thank you. Yay! Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.